There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. You see I'm all buffed out today. I went to a racket yesterday in, in Florida. That's all I'll tell you. It was in Florida. And I ran into some people that I had worked with 30 years ago and some great people that I worked with. And uh, it was a real uplifting experience. And when you think about the fraternity that is police work. It's just an incredible thing. I'll put a few pictures on the screen from uh, yesterday. And uh, all the way to the left is uh, retired NYPD Lieutenant Dan Nicholson. And in the middle is um, retired two-star chief Vinnie Coogan, who was my commanding officer of the 2-4 squad when I was there as a sergeant in the robbery unit. And so it was great to see both of them. You see, they actually brought up NYPD RMPs, uh, Radio Motor Patrol Cars, really buffed out. Uh, that's Stevie Deshavi, and he if you probably recognize him because he's on the TV show, The Dead Files. He's one of the stars of that TV show. He also happened to be in my team in Manhattan North Homicide Squad, in the A-team, and he was a, an outstanding detective, good guy, and what a personality, and that's why he's been on a TV show now for 15 seasons. And right here is a retired NYPD Captain Joe Lisi, who's probably the most successful NYPD actor in the history of the NYPD. He's done over 100 movies, TV shows. He was in The Sopranos. He was in Goodfellas. I can't even count all the movies he was in. And he, what a, an accomplished guy. And the, the greatest <laughs> remark he said to me, he goes, I made more money playing uh, playing a captain for one episode on a TV series series than I made as a real captain for a whole year on the NYPD. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so anyway, I know a lot of you guys asked how that was yesterday. It was fantastic. It's like going back into, uh, you know, when you meet friends, it, it doesn't matter that you haven't seen them in years. You just pick up where you left off. And it's like uh, so great to see people that you, you know, when you think about it, here's a profession where you risk your life with people. And then that same night you go home. But that always stays with you. Those those experiences and the fact that people had your back, uh, it stays with you forever. And that's policing. That's what being on the NYPD and the greatest police department in the world was like. And uh, when we get together, uh, it's just it's just a great, great experience. It's seeing people that yeah, I know I'm getting redundant that I haven't seen in years, but it was it was a great, great experience. So, folks, let's get back to what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, the whole Brian Koberger thing, I mean, obviously this gag order has put a uh, sort of a, just a stop on new information. So is, is the information that we're getting, a lot of information is coming from News Nation and Ashley Banfield. Now, can we trust that information? Is that information vetted? I know she talks about she has two sources who she can't name, obviously because of um, you know the, the court order, uh, the gag order. So are these two sources she has, 
are they reliable? You know, what are they, can we count on them? I don't know. So usually when we cover things, we would like to know that it was vetted and vetted by the police who are the arbiters of this, of what's true in this investigation. However, since now there is not, as a gag order, there's no new information coming out from law enforcement sources. That information potentially could be coming from other areas. And that's, that's what we're, we're well, I'm not relying on it. I'm, I'm going to vet that information by saying to you, qualifying it, that it, it may not be true. You know, we have to verify this. But one of the things, and of course, Banfield reported on this yesterday, was that, and I don't know if the termination letter she reads on the air, which I'll play some of it later on. In September and October, Brian Koberger was in a lot of trouble at Washington State University because of his behavior in the classroom. And it's been mentioned that he graded women much more harshly than he did males, which is like an indication that he's got a problem. You know, he absolutely has a problem. Uh, they didn't talk about all of his uh, apparent behavior, but obviously he had behavior in the classroom that raised some flags. Students must have went to the administration and they complained about him. Now, September, he was spoken to. October, he was spoken to. We know November 13th is when the quadruple murders happened of Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan. And, you know, saying their names actually is, is painful. And it's, it's painful for all of us that this even happened. But now that they have someone under arrest, it's always good. And I mentioned in numerous shows, they got to look at the perpology, the study of the perp, the background of the perp. And that's what this is. This is looking into the background of the perp, digging far into his background. What happened that may have caused him to go off the rails? I mean, obviously he had some issues. You know, he had a lot of the personality traits and said by many people of a serial killer. And if they find, if they discover that he he did uh, he did do another murder. Then he is a serial killer. By definition, is a serial killer is two separate incidents with time in between. If they discover another murder that he did, he instantly becomes a serial killer. Now he's a mass killer. Having well, he's being charged with he's he's innocent till proven guilty. He's being charged with being a mass killer for the fact that he murdered four people at once. If he is convicted of that crime. I'm going to play a little bit of Ashley Banfield from last night. And now we have to know, we have to see if this is vetted, whether it's in fact true or not, or it's, I don't know if we can confirm this right now, but this is what Ashley Banfield spoke about last night on her show. Had a propensity for bloody up close murder, and that has not yet been proved. He still may have needed like a trigger, you know, something to set him off like maybe a personal crisis, maybe a loss, something that might have made him lash out, maybe like losing a job, like losing his job as a teaching assistant at Washington State University. And then with that, losing your funding for the doctoral studies program you're in in the school, because it appears right now that that's what happened. We now have sources with direct knowledge of the termination letter that was sent to Brian Koberger. And tonight I want to read the letter to you in full. Uh, the letter is dated uh, December the 19th, 2022. It starts this way. Um, 
Mr. Koberger, I am writing this letter to formally inform you of the termination of your teaching assistantship with the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, effective December 31st, 2022. In keeping with the WSU Graduate Student Handbook, chapters 9G2, remember that, and 12E3, remember that, below is the list of events that led to you being deficient on the following contingency clause of your funding quote, maintaining satisfactory progress in fulfilling assistantship service requirements and duties. On September 23rd, 2022, you had an altercation with the faculty you support as a TA, Professor Snyder. I met with you on October 3rd to discuss norms of professional behavior. On October 21st, Professor Snyder emailed you about the ways in which you had failed to meet your expectations as a TA thus far in the semester. As a result, on November 2, Graduate Director Willits and I met with you to discuss an improvement plan, which you agreed to, and I shared with you in an email dated November 3rd. We met again December 7th, this time with a professor. Now, folks, when things like this happen to someone who in their employment, um, what you can see the employer is doing is documenting every single thing that occurs in case they have to pull the trigger and fire this person, which in fact appears to be what had occurred. Now, most people, obviously, um, if they lose a job, they're not going to strike out and, and kill four people. But Brian Koberger obviously had some deep-seated issues that something like this, could, could it or could it not be a trigger for to him have acted out and commit the horrific crime in which he's accused. So I, that's, these are some of the questions that we were asking right now. Professor Snyder, as well as Dr. Willits and I, to discuss your progress on the improvement plan. While not perfect, we agreed there was progress. On December 9th, there was another altercation with Professor Snyder, in which it became apparent that you had not made progress regarding professionalism and about which I wrote to you on December 11th, requesting a meeting. We met on December 19th when I informed you of your termination as a TA for spring semester. So folks, all of the, but the teaching assistant position was all connected also with him studying for his PhD and the funding, the scholarship he would get to study for his PhD, probably the housing was covered under this teaching assistant agreement. So his whole world would have collapsed in essence when he was terminated on December 19th. But remember, these murders occurred on November 13th. So he was living through all of this post this quadruple murder. So how was he, he was acting poorly before this he wasn't living up to the standards of the school. He was not doing what he was told, basically, in this program. How was he acting afterwards, I wonder? After he was terminated, I would, well, at some point he left the school and headed to, back towards Pennsylvania. But he did go back into the classroom after November 13th. So was this, they mentioned that in September he had gotten in trouble. Uh, in October, he basically kicked it up, but there was no signs of improvement. So they had to take action. 
So there's that. And we dug into the WSU Undergraduate Student Handbook, and we learned something that uh, those two chapters, 9G2, uh, to start with, that is the protocol for termination mid-semester or before the end of a period stipulated in a current offer letter. And that other one, 12E3, covers graduate and professional student complaint and grievance procedures. All very interesting. Joining me now, Jennifer Koffendoffer. She's a former FBI special agent. She's been following this case since the beginning. Jennifer, I'm so fascinated by the dating on this. Now, we don't know who the, the author of the letter is. We heard certain names that were quoted in that letter. We don't know who wrote the letter. It just refers to as I. Um, but the dates on it are, you know, significant because... We knew that he knew he had a meeting coming up on January 19th. He could have been doing that by Zoom as he was crossing the country. Um, but it almost sounded like he didn't see this coming. He didn't see the firing coming. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, certainly by these dates, though, he knows there is something going awry with his position and would certainly be concerned if these allegations are true. You know, folks, I think what um, really that they're, they're trying to say is that um, he had big time issues. He had big time issues. And even though with his undergraduate degrees, his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, he was able to get through school and do his work and, uh, you know, basically apply for a doctoral program far away from where he lived in Pennsylvania. How was he able to get through the interviews in order to be admitted to the doctoral program. Did they not do a deep dive into his background? Lee Perry, thank you for the 499 super sticker. Very much appreciated. They did they do a deep dive? I guess they didn't. They, they didn't look into his background. And I'm not saying that even if they had, he wouldn't have gotten accepted, but it became apparent that he had issues. You know, we talk about issues, right? It became apparent that he definitely had issues, and he showed he showed some behavior that was really abnormal. And you know, one of the things about teaching, and I taught college for ten and a half years, you're on stage every single day, and you have you know 20, 25, 30 kids in your class, and each and every one of them you're teaching directly to. And if there's something about you or something you say or do they don't like. They go and talk to people about it. They go report you or they just it becomes chatter on the college campus. So if you're not living up to snuff or, you know, I had a reputation of uh, like the, the, the kids liked me because they were like, oh, he's funny. That's the funny professor who's the homicide sergeant. And that was who I was. And it was like not Professor Cannon. It was Cannon, you know, and I just thought that was funny when they called me Cannon in the hallway. Hey, Cannon, how you doing? You know, but. Those are that's teaching, you know, college teaching. And like you're teaching young adults, they're, they're kids, we think of them as kids, but they're young adults, right? And some of them are working and some of them have a lot of pressures in their life too. And they don't need the extra pressure, say, of being treated unfairly. For example, the, the females in his classes, they complained that they were being treated unfairly. Uh, by Brian Koberger in the grading end. And, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, is, is not tolerable on a college campus. You know, think about him being more harsh to the female students than the male students. I don't think that would fly for very long, you know, and uh, 
So how long did it take for the administration to find this out that his behavior in the classroom was not up to par, that it wasn't wasn't acceptable to many of the students? How long did that take? How many students do you think went to the administration to complain about Brian Koberger and said that, you know, he's not treating us fairly? And how long did the wheels go into motion where it took to terminate him as a uh, as a TA, as a teaching assistant? You know, that we, we can't totally vet that right now because we don't know these um, these sources that Banfield has are. Um, sources close to the investigation because if they were named they could be arrested for contempt of court if they really are police or someone that are actually working on the investigation because the judge gave the, the judge the judge gave an order um that no one talk about the case so whoever these two sources are are defying that order and if they are caught they could actually be arrested for contempt of court, for disobeying the judge's order. You know, another thing about this case is that many people say, and 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 we, a lot of behavioral analysis the other night uh, on duty runs, jo- uh, Dr. Joni Johnston was on, who I have the most utmost respect for. Not only is she's really not a behavioral analysis, she's a forensic psychologist, which, uh, you know, has a lot more, background and education than most um, behavioral analysts that take a course, for example, FBI agents take a course at Quantico, Virginia. But but Dr. Joni Johnston is a forensic psychologist. Forensic really means, people misinterpret the word forensic. It, It actually means that the science you're applying is going to be used in a court of law to, uh, to prove a case. That's, that's a forensic psychologist. So at some point, your your education, your talents, everything you know is going to be used in a court of law to prove or disprove. We had a conversation the other night, and I would I had voiced my opinion uh, that I felt that a lot of this behavioral analysis is 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 more important after the fact than before the fact. Many folks uh, talked about before Brian Koberger was arrested and charged with this crime, many people talked about who was the Idaho killer? Who was he? And there were many different opinions of who he was. How old was he? Was he a male? Was he a female? Um, Was this personal? Did he know uh, the victims? All of these things were put into that, you know, the behavioral analysis, uh, bag of tricks and many of them commented on who they thought and what it meant what each stab wound meant the fact that he killed uh that they thought that he killed kaylee gonsalves and madison mogan first on the third floor and were they targeted all of those things were part of the behavioral analysis that was uh, that was talked about by many different behavioral analysis one of the best ones was a guy named mcclary and um he spoke about how, you know, when you talk about behavioral analysis, you can't talk about absolutes. There, certain things could mean certain things, but it also could not mean that. And I I was, um, I thought he had the best analysis of almost any of them. Anyway, I want to play this um, 
Ashley Banfield also interviewed the other night uh, a, a PhD, and he spoke about he wrote a book about serial killers, why we love serial killers, and I don't think love in serial killers belongs in the same sentence, but I understand what he means. What he meant really is why are, are people fascinated with serial killers? I think that's what his book should have been titled more than why do we love anyway with that said i'm going to play some of this interview he's a criminologist a professor he's the author of the best-selling book why we love serial killers the curious appeal of the world's most savage murderers dr bond you probably just heard the breaking news that that we just um reported on all of these conflagrations that Brian Koberger uh, seemed to have been having with his professors, with his students, um, and with other people among the staff, to the point where he was cut loose. He was fired from Washington State University from his teaching job. I just wanted to get your initial reactions to sort of that behavioral profile as you look at then now what he's accused of. Well, absolutely. And, and first of all, thank you for having me on this evening. And I wanted to say, I was thinking about this myself. I was a TA. When I was getting my PhD at the University of Miami, I was a TA, and that TA position was tied to my funding, my assistantship that paid for my entire education. So that is not something you want to leave, uh, lose. See, folks, basically what he's talking about is Brian Koberger, like all teachers' assistants that are going for their PhD. You know, if you're going for your PhD, he's 28 years old, you really, most of them don't have any money. So the money that you're receiving, A, to teach, probably a stipend, your tuition is being taken care of in full, and for the most part, you're getting housing. So if this is true that, in fact, Brian Koberger was fired from that position, it is a big deal. But would it be something that a normal person would act out upon and kill four people over? I don't think so, but then again, we're not dealing with a normal person here, but that's what they're looking at now. Was this something that he that just made him freak out? Is this something that made him act out? You do not want to risk losing something like that. And the fact that it escalated so quickly and that he was terminated in his first semester there would suggest to me that his behavior really was egregious, that it was that it was um, something that had become a big problem for the department and the university. And that, so those I wanted to just give that as a little bit of background. But to the extent that um, that this letter, which I don't believe the alleged letter has been um, completely authenticated yet, but if it is in fact true and the timeline is true, then this is something that could have absolutely um, contributed to him reaching a tipping point in his rage and anger and leading him to strike out in this terrible um, uh, murder situation. Yeah, we don't have our hands on the letter yet, but we've had the um, the essence of it authenticated by a source close to the investigation. Um, and that's the next best thing without actually getting. You know, folks, we again, all of us, are, we, we want to know who is and who are these sources close to the investigation, because I don't know if we all trust this 100 percent, a source close to the investigation unvetted. And again, if this source close to the investigation is giving money, excuse me, is giving information to the press, then they're violating the law and they could be arrested for that. So what is their motivation in doing this? That's a big question too. What's the motivation for someone to violate a court order and to give information to the press? I, I would want to know that 
before we go ahead and just say, oh, this is vetted information. Your hands on a copy of the termination letter. Um, and obviously, you know, when it comes to those kinds of, you know, staff and um, policy, you know, obviously administrative staff policies, um, employment records are pretty private. It's hard to get your hands on those things. But I'm curious Absolutely. about, yeah, you know, I was so curious when you said that for you, the, the teaching assistant job was tied to the actual program. And I'm guessing that that's not a far stretch to suggest the accommodations that were on campus as well might have been part of that too. So there could have been a lot of, a lot of stress. What I can understand is the utter bravado that it would take if all of that was on the line and you're getting warning after warning and a helping hand to try to work through your problems. What kind of personality do you think this is that would literally thumb his nose at the authority that hold his future in their hands? Great question. And you know, this crime that he committed is actually a mass murder. But I've been saying for some time now that the more that we learn about him, his development and his progression seems more similar to a serial killer. Uh, and I've studied serial killers extensively for some time. And so this didn't just happen, Ashley. I think that he was evolving, developing over a period of time. And he reached a tipping point where he simply couldn't take it anymore. And he had to act out on his fantasy of, of killing. And so something like this, where, where the rug had been pulled out from under him, his funding, his home, as you said, which I do believe was probably tied to his assistantship and his uh, TA position, it could have just pushed him over the edge um, to the point that, uh, that he had to act out. And, um, and because the, the escalation was already there. As you said, he was in trouble by September, by October. The murders took place in November, but he already knew that he was in deep trouble by then. Well, he still has the presumption of innocence, and these are allegations against him until they're uh, proven in a court of law. So at this point, he is an accused quadruple murderer. I, I'm still just so astounded by the, um, the sexism and the allegations that he was grading the women uh, differently than the men. And that to me would be a big you know, red flag for those uh, teachers or, or should have been. Um, and perhaps they did catch it very quickly as they started right in September. Uh, can't thank you enough. So uh, just so enlightening. Um, Dr. Bond, thank you, appreciate it. So folks, there's another person, another uh, PhD who's a criminologist that had mentioned the fact that he believes that uh, Brian Koberger has many of the traits of a serial killer. And that's been, you know, he's not the only one who has said that. This has been mentioned many times before. And when you think about it, all we have to hear is that, um, that he committed one other murder and he, he's an instant serial killer. Now he's a mass killer, but you know, we talked about even with Dr. Joni Johnson the other night on Duty Run's show about, you know, putting a square peg in a round hole, you know. And everyone wants to see that the person has all the traits of a serial killer. And then we had, we came up with that, that dog that was killed and skinned. Do we know if Brian Koberger did that? We don't know. But if he did do that. Wouldn't a lot of us say he's a serial killer? He's a, that's a trait of a serial killer. How about taking trophies from the scene or souvenirs? They they call them. 
don't forget the police did a search warrant on his campus apartment and they did a search warrant on his parents' home. Might they have recovered property belonging to the victims at those locations? That would be commonly called a trophy in the world of serial murderer or even any murderer taking to relive the thrill of what it was like to kill somebody. And that's what a trophy is. And so we don't know. He has a lot of the traits, even according to this, um, even according to this professor that Ashley Banfield just interviewed, Urban Infidel. I wonder if BK brought a GoPro camera with him that night. Ah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, They may have recovered something like that if he did. What I think many of us are very interested in is, um, is did he, um, did he take anything from the scenes, you know, and what did the police recover in some of these warrants? What, oh, another big thing I was saying is what was on his computer? That is a treasure trove of information. The computer that was in his apartment from the Washington State, off the Washington State University campus. What was on that? That potentially could have so much unbelievable information, smoking gun information, as they call it. Uh, So that I'm concerned with, because all of those things we haven't heard about. We haven't heard any of that yet. Uh, Okie dokie seven, QQQ with Idaho's DNA criminal collection laws. Can he even search or his DNA in other areas. I know his DNA was left at the crime scene and likely put through CODIS, but back to the Idaho uh, DNA laws. You know, I- I'm unaware of exactly how the Idaho DNA laws differ from any other state, uh, okie dokie. Um, but if they recover DNA, it absolutely can be compared, can be submitted to CODIS. And then through there, as we spoke about numerous times on this show, the FBI has, there are two um, categories of DNA in CODIS. One is offender, known offender DNA, and the other is forensic DNA. And you may ask, what is forensic DNA? Forensic DNA is DNA that comes from crime scenes where the perpetrator is unidentified. So that's what we'd be looking for potentially in any other murders that uh, that Brian Koberger may have committed, um, comparing crime scene DNA of other murders, other crimes with Brian Koberger's DNA. And if they get a hit on that, he could you know, potentially, again, uh, be a uh, an instant serial killer. Pauline Robb, he definitely left his own trophy at the crime scene, the sheath. You know, Pauline... Good point, but I don't think he meant to do that. Uh, That is at least one of the pieces of evidence that was very, very important in identifying him. The other, of course, was the the Hyundai, uh, the the white Hyundai vehicle that was seen at least three times that night on camera and identified. And then, of course, uh, put out, you know, an alarm was put out on that car. And the Washington State University police identified the person that owned that car as Brian Koberger. And then don't forget also, he changed the plates on that car, didn't he? He changed the plates to Pennsylvania plates. 
and Pennsylvania is not required to have a front license plate. That's something I think should be standardized throughout the United States. I believe every vehicle should have to have a front and rear plate. I mean, when you think about all the, the uh, license plate cameras, license plate readers, almost every jurisdiction these days have, has red light cameras. They're trying to nail you for going to a red light, speed cameras. Uh, if you just have a rear camera, is, is it as effective? And I mean, that's not the only reason I think each car should have a front and rear plate. I think it's, I think it's very important that cars to be able to identify the car that it has a front and rear plate. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then please join, join us. Go on our YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up, ring that bell, and recommend us uh, to your friends, to your family. Give us that thumbs up like, and uh, we'd be thrilled to have you. We also have a Patreon with three different levels, and we have a YouTube channel membership with five different uh, levels. And you can see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our uh, YouTube channel membership. And we really appreciate our friends, our fans, our subscribers, and they support us to a, a great a great deal. And uh, I'm proud of the fact that after like two, two and a half years on YouTube, maybe a little more than two, we hit 45,000 subscribers. It's I'm proud of that. We worked really hard to get there. And uh, we're always trying to build up our channel to get new subscribers, new points of view, new people that listen to the Police Off the Cuff family. And I appreciate all you guys. You know, one of the other things that they're working on right now in Pennsylvania is the whether or not uh, Brian Koberger perhaps committed a murder in Pennsylvania. And they're looking at old cases, cold cases, to determine if there's a possibility of that. Now his DNA, of course, is in, is in CODIS, so they have something to work with. Let's play a little bit of this. University of Idaho students lived in the Northwest for only a few months. He spent most of his years on the East Coast. So that's where Chris Ingalls from our sister station in Seattle went. He uncovered new information about how police and prosecutors in Pennsylvania are... Are you sick of having issues with your webinars, wasting tons of time on troubleshooting with attendees? It's Responding to the case. Sorry, guys, about that ad. Eastern Pennsylvania. Brian Koberger spent his teenage years and most of his adult life here. That includes stints at two local colleges, including DeSales. Now police and prosecutors in this area want to know what he was up to all those years and are digging into their cold case files. Just outside the open wilderness and resort towns of the Pocono Mountains, lies a neighborhood called the Birches. It's just a very quiet community. These are the streets an accused killer once roamed as a teenager. I've definitely seen it on TV. Who hasn't? Now, Lynn Klein and others in the Pennsylvania communities where Brian Koberger lived until last year want to know if he could have committed any crimes before he was charged with the murders at the University of Idaho. Because anybody or any family that's been harmed or done wrong to deserves to know the truth. It isn't just citizens. Police and prosecutors have asked the same question. Your natural reaction is to start wondering, okay, is this guy wanted? Uh, is his name out there? Uh, did he do anything here in Northampton County? Terry Houck. Terrence Houck is district attorney of Northampton County and leads an office of more than 20 prosecutors and a half dozen detectives. 
It's here at Northampton Community College, where Brian Koberger took his first courses in higher education, graduating here in 2018. After Koberger's arrest for the Idaho murders, Northampton County's district attorney ordered a review of unsolved cases in his county. We have a, a crime information center that, that compiles information of people's description, uh, size, weight, height, method of operation, things of that nature. Obviously, you wonder whether or not there was any criminality that he uh, committed here in Lehigh County or in the environs. Jim Martin, district attorney of the neighboring county, Lehigh, also ordered a review of unsolved cases. You know, folks, just to mention, uh, he, of course, he lives in Pennsylvania. Some of these counties are looking at him. When we talked about, and deeply, and I, I meant that, I coined that phrase, perpology, and that's a study of the perp deep background, look into his background. Did he, where did he travel? Did he ever go outside the country? Did he ever go to Europe? Did he ever travel down south? Did he travel, obviously he traveled west, he went to Washington State University. All of that, you need to take a deep dive into that. And to see and to talk to all these jurisdictions, a teletype message to every police department in this country, letting them know what you have. And MO, someone mentioned MO. And if you're not familiar with that, folks, it's modus operandi. It's a Latin word, and it means method of operation. And usually criminals that commit crimes like to commit them the same way with little or no deviation. They do deviate, but... MO is a very strong thing that links cases together. So all of that is something to think about. And then there's other things called signature, you know, method of operation, signature. Signature could be the way the person gets into or leaves his calling card. For the, In this case, someone mentioned that could him leaving the sheath have been like a trophy he left behind. Well, if he's committed other murders and that's his signature that he leaves the sheath there. But in this case, the sheath was something that got him identified, you know, through his father's DNA, familial DNA, genealogical, genetic genealogical DNA, which was able to zero in on Brian Koberger. So all of these things, the investigators need to take a deep, deep dive into this. And we talk about Perpology. What is perpology? Well, it's, it's looking into the background, but more than that, what is the person's alcohol habits, drug habits, sexual habits? Does the person own a car? Yes, we know they do. Where does the person live? Who are the person's friends? Who are the person's friend's friends? How about the, the perpetrator's family? Who are the family members? What are the family members' criminal histories? What are their work histories? What is the perpetrator? What are his computer habits? Is he a video game? I mean, oh, there's a hundred different variables. And you could, they used to call it mind mapping. And now it can pretty much be done almost exclusively by a computer. You can search all of these things. And it's very, very helpful to look deep into that. But a computer is not going to know the things unless you input it into there. Where has he been in his life? Where does he travel to? You know, does he travel? Maybe he has no history really of traveling. But all of these things are part of the perpology, as I call it. And I'm sure it's called suspect profiling. 
or perpetrator profiling now. Lehigh County is home to DeSales University, which Koberger attended after Northampton Community College. He spent four years here studying criminal justice. Ryan Koberger. Earning a master's degree last summer. What does law enforcement do given that he did spend time? Well, we have a resource here called the Regional uh, in Intelligence and Investigation Center. It's the, the first thing I did was I asked that, uh, I asked the, the director of the RIC, as we call it, uh, to see if we had any contact with Mr. Koberger. A data search of more than 6 million police incident reports in Pennsylvania turned up only one record with Koberger's name. He called police from this bike trail one night to report that his car was locked behind a park gate. There was a response from him thanking the police and apologizing for the inconvenience. The district attorney in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, where Koberger grew up and where a SWAT team arrested him on December 30th, did not respond to our questions. But in Northampton and Lehigh counties, both district attorneys say their investigations have found no links to Koberger and any unsolved cases. So we have no unsolved homicides that in any way meet the mo modus operandi of, of this event out in uh, Idaho. There has nothing been brought to my attention. Uh, in fact, nothing with respect to Koberger has come, come about in our investigations of cold cases or unsolved cases to this point. And that should be some relief to a community that's been stunned and saddened by the murders of four college students 2,500 miles away. It's a little close to home. You just don't expect it. So prosecutors say the bottom line is there's no evidence that Koberger committed any crimes here in Pennsylvania. In Center Valley, Pennsylvania, Chris Ingalls, King 5 News. interesting folks that you know but at least you know that the police the fbi uh they're following up on it and they're looking they're taking a deep dive into the potentiality that he's done other crimes you know that uh it doesn't have to be in pennsylvania but that that's a good start because that's where he was from that's where he lived most of his life but how about even outside the state of Washington or the states that adjoin the state of Washington and Idaho. Uh, teletype message is the easiest way to all police departments to determine whether they have anything that fits this MO. Look, this case has been in, since November 13th, it's been an internationally known case. So obviously I think that uh, Many police departments, if not all across the United States, know about this case. Whether or not it spurred any of them on to actually look into it to see if they have any cases that fit this MO, that fit this, it's a, a unique MO, obviously. The, the knife point murder of four people with a K-bar knife. I mean, it's a unique modus operandi. No forced entry into a house. Uh, stalking the house, reconning the house, all of that is part of modus operandi, right? 12 times he reconned the house, probably got in, probably knew that that sliding glass door was unlocked, just simply slid the door open. So all of those things are part of modus operandi. Interesting, right? Interesting how that's figured out. 
I want to play a little bit of earlier on this case when an FBI, FBI profilers were talking about this case. And because I think it is interesting that, you know, when we didn't know or when there was no arrest in this case, this person could have been anyone, right? So the, it was interesting uh, to hear the profilers talk, even though, I, as I, I've said a lot of times, I don't have a ton of faith in it, but I think it's still interesting to listen to. Let me get it up on the screen here. Take a look at this. It's a survey Koberger posted online as part of an undergraduate research project. Now, part of the introduction reads, quote, I'm inviting you to participate in a research project that seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. The survey was uh, aimed at criminals. Now, listen to some of these questions he was asking. Quote, why did you choose the victim or target over others? Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? What was the first move you made in order to accomplish your goal? After arriving, what steps did you take prior to locating the victim or target? Is this something that Koberger wanted for a academic report? Or is this something he wanted for his own information to figure out the best way to commit a crime and how criminals could almost give him advice on how to do it? I think that's what made this survey, if you will, interesting that he seemed to be digging in to the minds of criminals and not for an academic research project, but perhaps for his own uh, criminal, um, his own criminal mind. Target. How did you leave the scene? Hmm. Sounds a little odd to me. But let's go to FBI retired criminal profiler and author of Journey to the Center of the Mind, James Fitzgerald, for his expert uh, opinion. Uh, James, you know, listen, I read some of these questions that Kohlberger had in his undergraduate research project. What do you make of that in light of his arrest today? Sean, as soon as, as soon as I heard those questions or read them earlier, it reminded me of the protocol of like 400 questions that we had back in the day as new profiters when we would go through our intensive training in Quantico, Virginia. Within a year or so, we'd go out to the prisons and interview serial offenders and violent offenders. They're convicted. They're not going anywhere. There's no deals offered. And we would ask them about 400 questions about how they committed crimes, why they committed crimes, why they chose certain victims, why they didn't chose other victims. And you know what? The, the questions I've seen so far uh, in, uh, in our subjects, uh, uh, the questions that he had prepared uh, for his master's thesis, uh, very similar to those. So this guy obviously is intelligent. This guy has obviously done his research, and uh, he wanted to get inside the mind of these people. But at the same time, perhaps he wasn't getting all the answers from them himself, so he had to do it himself commit this type of a crime to truly answer those questions. And, and what a heinous way to go about doing your research uh, in, in this regard. But it begs the question, you know, was he doing this for his thesis or research project, or was he actually doing, you know, op or research to, to make sure he could better commit his crime when he chose to do it? Sure. And every and many criminals, you know, Kaczynski, the D.C. sniper, uh, the, the, the anthrax uh, guy, they all claim to have these uh, uh, over the top sort of uh, rationales and reasons for doing it once they're caught. But in, in uh, quite frankly, they have violent ideations, many of them mental, mental health issues, and they want to sort of form an excuse for why they go out and commit crimes, be it a one off like this guy 
killing four people at once or being a, you know, a serial offender that goes on for weeks or months or, or decades in the case of some of them. So uh, this guy wanted to kill someone. I am sure about that. And once he got more uh, in the world of this whole uh, criminal justice uh, studies and how these prisoners think and, uh, and operate, he somehow thought he could be one of them. But you know what? He thought he would be smarter. And you know what, Sean, it reminds me from 99 years ago, before my time, but I'm certainly familiar with the history of the Leopold and the Loeb case in Chicago. They were a couple of college students, thought they were smarter than law enforcement, and they went and kidnapped and killed a 14-year-old boy. There was a movie called Rope, made in 1948, a Hitchcock movie, which captures that. The methodology is different, of course, but uh, I think part of what this guy is uh, is someone who thinks he's smarter than the rest of us, certainly law enforcement, and that may be at least one of the factors which contributed to him committing this crime. You know, James, over the last seven weeks, we've had a lot of people on TV, all networks, you know, uh, criminal profilers, psychological profilers of what this killer would look like. We don't know a, a whole lot about Kohlberger, but from what you've seen, would he match the profile of someone who would do a, a, commit a crime like this? Well, Sean, I, I was here five weeks ago tonight, uh, this exact show, just about this exact time, and I laid out three potential scenarios of this person. Um, uh, and and it, it was someone known by the victims, directly, indirectly, maybe he knew them more than they knew him. It could be someone involved in incel, involuntary celibacy, or some kind of a sexual sadist. A few of those can actually be, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. They can be, uh, uh, people can operate under two or even three of those conditions when committing these crimes. Throw in this fascination with real world, real world crime and the prisoners and the inmates and the, this questionnaire he put out, uh, this fascination level was so high for him, just doing the research on his own wasn't enough. He had to go and involve mm. himself directly in these crimes. He didn't choose shoplifting, unfortunately. He chose mass murder of five innocent people while they slept. Yeah, so, it's so sad. James, James Fitzpatrick, thanks for joining me. He was one of the, um, the really better um, profilers that I, I watched since November 13th this occurred. You know what sometimes really what bothers me when I, I listen to a lot or, or even read all the chat, when people act as if, oh, he wasn't a good killer. He would, should have known how to get away. I mean, that bothers me. Like, what do you mean? Like, is there is there a good killer, someone who knows how to kill and thwart the investigation and not leave evidence behind? Is that what a good killer is is there does that person exist that's going to kill someone and 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 studied so well like you know people are talking about oh did how did he not leave evidence behind well we don't know if he if he in fact left evidence behind or not because we don't have all the police evidence but we know for a fact that he left that sheath and that had his uh when they did the DNA, his father's DNA matched that 99.88888 or something like that. And that's how they came up with Brian Koberger with genealogical, genetic genealogical DNA. And then they progressed to getting his DNA was compared against that. Now, there's, there's ways we uh, defense attorneys say, oh, we can explain that away. They can explain that sheath that was left there away. But can they explain if there was blood evidence left on the scene? Can they explain that away? 
I don't think so. I don't think they can explain that. And the other thing is, like, when they look at him as a, um, if they look at him as this heroic serial killer, like that, the professor that wrote, Why Do People Love Serial Killers? And I don't think that's the proper word to use. I think the, the word is that there's a fascination with serial killers. And, you know, I, Duty Ron, myself, Phil Grimaldi, Mike Geary, um, we all talk about, we all like to get the focus back after we've covered this horrific crime, get the focus back on Ethan Chapin, uh, Zaina Canoto, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan. Those are the real victims, two 20-year-olds and two 20-year-old, 21-year-old college kids, kids, you know? And really, when you go to college, you're a kid. You really are. I mean, when do you really become an adult? I guess legally 21, but you're still really a kid. You haven't experienced life. And, you know, you still need, I think you still really need your parents' guidance at that age. I really believe that. I really think you do. And I know my kids did. My kids needed, they still need guidance, you know, and they're 28 and one's going to be 31 next month. And they still go to their mom and dad for guidance. And I think all you guys out in the chat world, in, in our chat that are parents, you know what I'm talking about. You know, your kids always, well, are people that are older wiser? You hope to think so. Most, you know, but not everyone is wise. Not everyone will ever become wise. But I, I take pride in that my kids do come to me and they come to my wife for advice. And that's good that they have parents that they can go to and they have parents that they can confide in. So, I mean, I'm just drawing a picture of really who the four Idaho victims are. And it, it's just a horrific, horrific uh, case. Jennifer, where they mess up is most don't stop at just one. They keep going. I think it took BTK 30 years to get caught. I had never heard of him until BK Ted Bundy went a while. It's just most don't stop at one. Well, Jennifer, I think that in this day and age, because of technology, um, uh, because of technology and because of DNA, that serial killers are actually very, very rare now. Thank God they're very rare because they usually don't make it to their second murder. They get caught early on because of technology. You know, one of the biggest pieces of technology and many people would argue, oh, it's against our civil liberties are video cameras. Look how video cameras came into play in this investigation, right? Tremendously came into play. The vehicle, the white Hyundai was caught on the, uh, the, the video camera on the house, pulling into the back parking lot, casing the location, right? On those ring cameras, those ring cameras are fantastic. They're all over the world now. You know, and people argue, oh, it's against our civil liberties. Well, if you're a homeowner, you want to have a ring camera. It's your business. And who it catches on it, you know, if someone's doing bad things and they come onto your property, you know, they don't have rights to come onto your property and do bad things, right? So that's another reason. Video. Video is all over the place, all over the world. Other technology like Easy Pass, license plate readers, um, Red light cameras, speed cameras, cameras in commercial locations, 
all of these things have came into play during this investigation, right? And we don't even know one hundredth of the invest of the evidence that uh, the police have in this case. Urban Infidel, there was a great book called Sons of Cain that talks about the golden age of serial killers and how things have evolved since that cluster of serial killers in history. You know, I I don't, I mean, I'm not, I guess, well, in a way, I, I, I'm, it's, it's interesting, but yet I view serial killers as horrific, horrific people. You know, some of the worst, you know, John Wayne Gacy, there was killing and assaulting little kids. I mean, Ted Bundy, you know, all of these horrific serial killers, the son of Sam in New York, that was back in the 70s, who was going into lover's lanes with a 44 caliber bulldog revolver and shooting people that were having sex. Do you think there was a sexual component to that? Yeah, I think so. I think so, you know. And uh, he killed and maimed people by shooting a 44 caliber handgun is extremely powerful handgun. And it took back then we didn't have the technology that we have now. And in, what actually led to capturing the son of Sam was a parking ticket written on his car. And that was one of the things that uh, led to his capture. So, you know, incredible. And as I said, it's it's rare. Uh, serial killers are rare now. And uh, thank God, because we have so much more technology to capture them much quicker. Folks, if you're looking for an attorney in the New York City area, New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. He's a retired NYPD police officer, and he's an outstanding defense attorney. He's a big supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. His website is jmurray-law.com. Uh, I used to get Joe to come on the show a lot, but he's his law practice is so busy that he's not as available as he once was. So it's, um, you know, the, the other night I was on duty, Ron's, and we spoke with um, Dr. Joni Johnson. I want to play a little bit of what she had to say, and duty Ron asked her a question. And she's a fantastic person, a fantastic uh, forensic psychologist. Uh let me share the screen with her now, and um, we'll get this up there. Generated user audience generated question. If the defense was to get a, a forensic psychologist on their side to come in and testify, what would be some of the angles that they would look at based on what we know publicly available about Brian Kohlberger? What would a forensic psychologist bring up uh, in a, in a, in a, um, in a defense for this, for this guy? Okay. So you're talking the defense guy. So I think what, number one, I think um, it would be most effective in the penalty phase as opposed to the prosecution phase, because it's hard for me to, talk, to think of any defense you could have. Um, you know, I mean, there's no indication that there's any kind of insanity plea. Idaho doesn't even allow that. So that's out of the table anyway, but even if it was allowed, he himself has said, I'm not mentally ill. There's no indication of that at all. So I don't know how it would be helpful to him at all, again, in the, you know, in the actual guilt phase of the trial. 
I think if you're looking at it from a penalty phase, a lot of the things that you've already talked about, you know, you're going to have people coming in talking about his history of bullying, um, talking about his depression as a teenager, you know, talking about the stress he was under around the time of the, of the you know, the offense, how he struggled socially. I mean, all those things, you're going to try to find somebody to tell this person's life story in a way that's going to, um, you know, try as much as possible, which is an enormous challenge and often does not work. You know, that this person is salvageable in terms of maybe he can be productive in prison and also that his, maybe he should be in prison for life. Yeah, so that makes, I mean, you answered a lot of the questions of people in the audience and, and, and folks that are just following this. When would some angle of, of this sort be employed? And, and, and it would happen towards the, the penalty phase. Um, See, folks, that question came out of, um, uh, I think, me making a comment about that I don't think profiling really helps that much in the hunt for the perpetrator. I think it, it's more, and especially in, like in this case, if they did bring in uh, a profiler or a behavioral analyst, I think it would be brought in by the defense and not the prosecution, because how would that help the prosecution? But surely it might help the defense in uh, it might help the defense in maybe feeling sympathy for the perpetrator in this, but it's surely, I don't believe uh, it would help. It, it could help at all with the prosecution. Roe Ventures LLC, BK carried his cell phone turn on and off that came back with phone on, either thinking about sheath or adrenaline rush to see cops from the house an eight hour from DM not doing nothing. Well, Roe Ventures, you're, you're correct. Um, but isn't that, in itself, evidence of, as Mike Geary says all the time, consciousness of guilt. He's turning off his phone when he's going to commit the crime. And then when he leaves the crime, he still has the phone off. At some point, hours later, he turns his phone back on. Then he goes back to the location, his phone is on. So is that not a consciousness of guilt? So folks, we're going to stay with this case. And when the new information comes out, We'll, so, we'll surely bring you the latest up-to-date. I don't know if, in fact, this letter that uh, Ashley Banfield is saying is, uh, is a true letter of, of his termination, but I think it's important to look at the potentiality of what could have pushed him over the edge to the point that he killed four innocent students. And again, uh, I'd I just like to say we pray for the souls and for the families of Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan. And we always like to mention them. And uh, whether you believe in prayer or not, if you don't give them good thoughts to their family and, and uh, to the lost souls of these poor student victims. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in uh, tonight. Uh, it's the first time in a long time. I flew solo. Um, neither one of my compadres was available this evening, so uh, I thought I would uh, come out with my new NYPD hat. You guys like the new hat and my NYPD shirt. I'm looking really, really buffy. They call it, if you wear a police attire, you're a buff. You're a police buff. And okay, I'll, uh, <laughs> that represents me. So I'll, I'll, I'll embrace that. So folks, again, thank you so much. 
Have a great night, and I'll see you very soon. One episode, just ain't enough.